0: Welcome to Kevin Connor's podcast. This current series of messages is on the Book of Acts, showing its relevance for today as a pattern book for the operation of the Holy Spirit through the Church. Be sure also to get a copy of Kevin's commentary on the Book of Acts. Visit kevinconner.org for details. What then were you baptised? And they said, unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptised with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe, so we have repentance and faith here, uh, believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this uh, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the earliest manuscripts bring up they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the triune name. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. Now let's just pick up where we've been going. We're on uh, the third missionary journey that Paul uh, is uh, doing here and we notice that he's gone from Antioch and right through, right round here to uh, Ephesus and right through or right through to Macedonia and Philippi and then he goes way down here to Corinth uh, doesn't go to Athens again how many know that uh, he sort of learned a lesson from Athens and didn't sort of feel too inspired after he tried to convince them with their uh, Greek wisdom but when I came to Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Then from Corinth, he goes all the way back around here, uh, back to Troas, then to Miletus, and then down here and takes his ship right across to Tyre and then uh, ends up uh, testifying in Jerusalem. So that's uh, Paul's third missionary journey. And uh, in our, in our, our, uh, following the particular places Paul went to, uh, just saying it again in different ways, third missionary journey coming from Antioch, then through Galatian Phrygia, uh, and then ephesus and that 's where we 're at now the Ephesian Pentecost and the riot that 's caused there before he goes on to Macedonia and these other places so as uh, as John uh, not John, as Luke is writing the book here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see that he 's just touching on the main Uh, the main spots or the highlights, as it were, in each of the places that Paul goes on these missionary journeys. Now, the thing that we left ourselves looking at was this. Why is it that when Paul came to Ephesus here, uh, now it's the Lord's time, before he was forbidden to go to Ephesus and forbidden to go to Bithynia, but now it's the Lord's time, and so a church is being established here. We asked ourselves the question, why is it that when Paul came to the meeting, Uh, To the disciples of John, finding certain disciples, uh, he sensed that someone or something, how many would say someone rather than something, someone was missing from the meeting. And uh, in the course of the meeting, whatever happened in the meeting, uh, whether the meeting was dead, lifeless, no unction in the function, uh, he says, have you people received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said a very peculiar thing, they said, look we haven't even heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. And uh, so if they, uh, you know, Paul immediately questions their baptism, well, tell me about your water baptism, showing how important the whole truth of water baptism was in the early church, that he sensed the Spirit was not there, so he says, let's go back. And so they said, well, we even, haven't even heard whether there would be any Holy Spirit. And I think there's probably a, uh, a double thought there. If they'd been baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which is never quoted once in the book of Acts, so we quote it here just to uh, stop people charging us with heresy um, it's never quoted once in the book of Acts uh, if they'd been baptized that way at least they could have said oh well we have heard of the Holy Spirit but it's quite evident here they and it's years later this is AD 54 and Jesus was crucified about AD 34 20 years ago uh, 34 yes, uh, about 20 years or so ago and they haven't even heard of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit Yet the Spirit is being poured out on the Jews at Pentecost, the house of Cornelius, down on the Samaritans, Paul himself. And now, about 20 years later, uh, Paul finds these disciples. So, you know, uh, we didn't have the, or they didn't have the means of communication in those days that we have today. Of course, they tell me the four fastest means of communication today are Telefax, Telegram, Telephone, Telewoman. Ah, uh, ah... Uh. <laughs> everybody said amen because they're good witnesses alright so 20 years has gone by and they know nothing about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so something about that they hadn't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit so he says well let's look at your water baptism so they said "Hey, we had John's baptism John years ago he'd had disciples and so the disciples of John had gone out and John's main message was two things repentance faith And water baptism first principles so John's ministry was the first principle ministry laying again the foundation repentance from dead works faith towards God doctrine of baptisms so John just did first principles so he said John verily baptized with a baptism repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him that should come uh, come after him that is on Christ Jesus so when they heard this no argument no fight they didn't say, look, we've been baptized, once, that's good enough for us. John's baptism, sufficient for us. No, there was something in incomplete, something inadequate about John's baptism. And as we see uh, to the thought there, when you go back to the previous chapter, and there were no chapter divisions when uh, Luke wrote, here was Apollos, a Paul mighty man, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, and he only knew, knowing only the baptism of John. So it leads up to this situation here. So let's pick up the thought here now. And uh, very important to pick up on this because Paul turned around and rebaptized these people. No argument, no fussing, no fighting. He rebaptized them. So there must have been something insufficient, incomplete, inadequate about John's baptism even though it was by immersion even though it involved repentance of faith and immersion something incomplete about it so Paul turned around and rebaptized them and the Lord Jesus wasn't upset about it because when Paul laid hands on them they received the Holy Spirit so they were baptized twice and then baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as they did 20 years ago and uh, began to prophesy and this is the Apostle Paul so let's pick up uh, the comparisons and then uh, we'll look at the difference. So John's baptism and Christian baptism. Now when Jesus said, as, uh, as he, before he ascends to the Father, he says, OK, uh, I, 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 he gave commandments to the apostles and said, OK, go into all the world, preach the gospel of every creature, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Christian baptism now supersedes John's baptism. As good as John's baptism was, it was incomplete and inadequate, as we're going to see for two major reasons. So when Jesus gave the commandment concerning baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or we say Christian baptism, Christian baptism supersedes John's baptism. Otherwise, they could have had a big argument. We've had John's baptism. That's good enough for me. I'm not going to be rebaptized but there was something that Paul saw that necessitated them being rebaptized, and one of those things, okay? So let's look at the comparisons we have or the the, uh, two things that relate. Okay, John's baptism and Christian baptism involve repentance or the repentant. John's baptism and Christian baptism involves the remission of sins. John's baptism and Christian baptism involves faith in the coming Messiah, faith in Christ Jesus. John's baptism and Christian baptism involved confession of being a sinner. It was a sinner's baptism. Confession of faith, burial of the old self-life. John's baptism was by plunging, dipping or immersion beneath the water and so is Christian baptism. So in all these respects above, both John's baptism and Christian baptism are identified. So now we say, okay, wherein lies the difference? And here is the difference. Two major things I want you to pick up here. Okay, so wherein lies the difference? The following gives the answer. John's baptism was before the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and John's baptism was nameless. Okay, so it was nameless. He couldn't say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, because Jesus didn't give that to John the baptism, so it was nameless. So it was before the death, burial, and resurrection, uh, whereas Christian baptism is after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and Christian baptism invokes the name of Christ. John's baptism was ordained of God temporarily, but Christian baptism is permanent in the church. John's baptism was incomplete, insufficient, and inadequate for the New Testament church, but Christian baptism completes that which was lacking in John's baptism, So John's baptism was superseded by the command of Jesus in baptism in Matthew 28, 19. Christian baptism replaces John's baptism. And Christian baptism is into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Acts, seven times into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the main differences are there is that John's baptism was nameless. Whereas Christian baptism is into the triune name of the triune God and John's baptism uh, was before the death, burial and resurrection of of the Lord Jesus Christ and Christian baptism is we are baptised into his death, we are buried with him in baptism and we rise to walk in newness of life. So Christian baptism involves identification with that triune fact. How many see that? So very important on the whole issue of of re-baptism and in a a certain extent uh, a lot of churches today that simply say we baptise you in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost they are simply quoting the command without obeying it in the book of Acts they baptise into the triune name and so uh, here in Waverly Christian Fellowship we use three verses of Scripture we quote the Gospel we baptise you in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost and then we invoke the name in the book of Acts into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and then we declare the spiritual truth of baptism that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father even so you'll rise to walk in newness of life so we don't just use one verse of Scripture we put three verses of Scripture one from the Gospel one from the Acts, one from the Epistles. How many think that's safe there? So we, we're safe every way. All right, so it's a big point because people say, well, sometimes you re-baptise people. say, so, yes. Why? on a uh, basic principle that we're seeing here. All right, so that's one of the big things in here. Now, let's move on in Acts 19 and uh, see what else happens here in, in Ephesus. We find, uh, as uh, Paul's custom was, in uh, verse uh, 8 Paul goes into the synagogue and as we've been through that in the previous session to the Jew first and he spake boldly for three months that's a little bit longer than he did in in other synagogues Uh, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God so disputing and persuading well I agree with you this is what the Old Testament said this is how Jesus fulfilled it and uh, so in verse 9 what's the result divers were hardened and believed not but spake evil and those of you who have the New King James and even some of the other translations uh, they spake evil of that way literally they spake evil of the way the early church people were called the people of the way I am the way the truth and the life so they were people of the way And that's a whole theme in itself because when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and then they sinned, God uh, cast them out of the garden and He placed uh, cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. That's the first use of that expression, the way. So it helps us understand what Jesus meant when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life because in Adam we lost the way, we lost the truth, And we forfeited the tree of life. So all that we lost in Adam is restored in Jesus. Hallelujah. Can you say hallelujah? So I am the way, so the cherubims kept the way to the tree of life. So when Adam and Eve would come back to the cherubim and see the flaming sword, they thought, oh, we want to get back to the tree of eternal life. But to go through the sword meant death so the way was lost he believed the lie and said you'll not die so we lost the way the truth and the life so all that we lost in Adam Jesus came to be to us so he said I am the way and the, the very fact that blood is on the mercy seat is evidence that Jesus has gone through the sword and made the way back to the tree of eternal life that's the very first promise he gives to the first church that's lost its first love to him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God so uh, I'm, uh, I'm glad for Adam for my first birth, but I'm glad for Jesus for my new birth. <laughs> can not you? Yeah. All right, so they spoke evil the way. So Paul continued in this, uh, uh, we have a division here in verse 9. He departed from them out of the synagogue, separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And uh, so this continued for two years, and as we see by the map, uh, and this was God's purpose in Ephesus here, so that all that were in dwelt in Asia so where he'd been forbidden to go to Bithynia and Asia before now it's God's time and so from Ephesus all in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Jews and Greeks so we have the uh, seven churches in the book of Revelation Pergamos, Thyatira Sardis Philadelphia Smyrna Laodicea and so forth so the seven churches so all of Asia heard the word and so as we said before Ephesus like Antioch Ephesus and um Thessalonica and Jerusalem, they were the four major churches reaching out into certain uh, geographical areas. Then I like uh, verse 11. We're told that God wrought special miracles. Uh, that word special actually means out of the ordinary. How I many would just like to see an ordinary miracle now and then? Uh, I've asked the Lord, just give us some ordinary miracles. Keep the special ones till later. But uh, they were special miracles and so special were they that uh, they took uh, cloths from Paul's body, handkerchiefs and aprons and uh, the diseases, part of them, so you picture this, you know, well I think my handkerchief's clean, yes, Uh, and laid them on Paul's body. And there was enough power and virtue in Paul's body to put into the cloth. And when they laid, the, uh, laid these cloths on people, the disease is part of them and evil spirits went out. And there was more. In fact, we say there was more po- uh, power in Paul's handkerchief and apron than there is in a lot of living preachers. They scared the devil out of some people. Amen? So, uh, you no know, special miracle. So, so, Lord, give us just some ordinary ones for a start. Now, in verse 13, this is a very uh, exciting foundation for the church at Ephesus. Uh, certain of the vagabond Jews, so now they know better, they are Jews, exorcists. How many have been to see the film Exorcist? you very, very hesitant, put up your hands. I, think I told you about this time I was in the uh, flying in the States to a ministers' conference, and uh, I was reading my Bible, getting ready for the conference. And uh, a man next to me in the plane said, uh, "Oh, uh, what are you?" I said, oh, "I said I'm a minister of the gospel." He said, "Oh, I see that you've got your Bible." He said, "Have you have you uh, seen the film The Exorcist?" And I said, "No, I haven't." I said, uh, "Have you seen it?" He said, "Yes." I said, "Tell me what you think about it." And uh, He told me about, I said. So after I let him talk for a while, I thought, boy, this is too good to miss. I said, "Uh, did you know that the exorcist was in the Bible? He said, no. And uh, we we're coming into the land then. I started to take out my Bible and show he said, Well, could you wait till we get up again? So I thought, Oh, I've got a captive audience here, praise God, he can't go anywhere. So when we, we took off again, I opened my Bible to Acts nineteen and I started to read. I said, Look what it says here. I said, By the way, are you a church person? Or? He said, Oh, I've been to church in that, but I'm not really. So I said, You listen to this. I said, Here's and made it real thriller, exciting, you know. I said, Look at this. I said, Vagabond Jews, exorcist. There it is. He said, Is that there? I said, Yeah look at it exorcist all King James uh, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus and say we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth and there were seven sons of one Sceva a Jew and chief of the priest which is, uh, and the evil spirit answered and I was a bit facetious and said Jesus and I and Paul I know but who the devil are you and uh, the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overcame them, prevailed against them, stripped their clothes out off them and they tore out of the house naked. Wow. And I said to the guy, I said, do you know why that happened? He said, oh no, I've really got his attention now because when he told me about the exorcism, his hair was standing up on end, you know, scared the devil out of him. Well, almost, you know, scared. Didn't scare hell out of him, but you know, uh, so so I said do you know why that happened he said well no tell me so I've got the Bible there it's really great I've enjoying every second of this you know I said well the thing is these guys didn't know Jesus Christ they weren't Christians so I said how could they use his name when they didn't even know him Oh, I said do you know him are you you a Christian (laughs) I don't know what happened at that but I did get the gospel in anyway but that was it see turn over quickly to Luke chapter Luke chapter um, uh, 10 yeah Luke chapter 10 gives you a very interesting uh, thing about this now the issue is these were Jews they were sons of or involved with a chief priest so they knew better so now here they are, presumptuously are using the name and say, well, we adjure you by uh, Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they don't know Jesus themselves. They're not Christians. And yet they dare to use the name of Jesus. And you see, Jesus had not given them power of eternity. A power of attorney. Remember in the Gospel of, of uh, John, he says, uh, "I give unto you my name. You've asked uh, nothing in my name, but ask the Father in my name." And from now on, Amplify says, "Keep on asking the Father in my name." So when Jesus gave us the right to use His name, He gave us legal power of attorney. So the name of Jesus was not just a magic word on their lips in the early church; it was a power. And so sometimes, you know, I say to people, "Okay, you just say Kevin Connor said this." Oh, that's all right. But if they say Jesus and no, Paul, no, but who the devil's Kevin Connor? Uh, you punch him in the nose and they name of Jesus and then repent and tell me, okay? So sometimes, but then others I've had to say, if they say Kevin Connor, don't let anybody use my name in vain because there's name droppers floating around. But sometimes, but much more of Jesus. So listen to this one. And, and, and what I'm going to say now brings out a different aspect than what we see in the surface here. Verse 17 of Luke 10. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. They've been out in the campaign here, healing campaign, casting out devils and healing the sick and everything. And they're just really excited. Oh, Jesus, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. And uh, Jesus completely seemed to ignore it. He said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning. Now, there's a veiled warning in this, because you see, Satan fell through pride. And the danger is that they're getting laid. Lord, couldn't we write a magazine? Our box number is 666. Tell them about the miracles and signs and wonders. Where, uh, Jesus said, I beheld Satan falls lightly. Like. He fell through pride, was lifted up through his ministry and his anointing. You beware of that. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, In this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you. But what does it say? Rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now a surface reading of that just sort of gives you thought. Don't just rejoice because you're casting out devils and you have the ability and power over demons. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now a surface reading would say, okay, my name is written in heaven in the book of life. Do you know what a fuller meaning of that thing is? and i got this from brother david Schock, who had explored a bit more he's really saying don't rejoice because the devil's a subject to you but rejoice that your names are published abroad in the heavenlies i like it and see who's in heavenlies our warfare is against principalities and powers and wicked spirits in the heavenlies in heavenly places so it had got up to heaven there What's that guy Paul? He has power and has the authority to use the name of Jesus. But when these guys used to use the name and abused the name and had no power of attorney, the devil said, look, Paul we know, Jesus we know up in the heavenlies and Paul we know up in the heavenlies because the name's up there. But who the devil are you? We don't know you. And so the evil spirit leapt upon them. Right? And they fled out the house naked and wounded. So I like back to Acts 19 quickly here. So this was known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling at Ephesus and fear fell on them. Hallelujah. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And so great was the result. Many believed, that believed, and here's a bunch of believers you've got to remember the whole occult culture in Ephesus and these cities here and these towns idolatry witchcraft uh, temples given to uh, demonic manifestations many that believed uh, came and confessed and showed their deeds and many of them that had used curious art bought their books together so magic books and you think of all the witchcraft and occultic books that are in the, in the Satanist churches and in, in things today, those who are into astrology and uh, necromancy and all this business. You know, our generation's plagued with books on the occult. And these were believers and they came and burned them. 50,000 pieces of silver, but the, so mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. Hallelujah. And I believe there's a spirit behind many books. How many believe there's a spirit behind this book? Holy Spirit. I remember dealing with a woman in Seattle many years ago. She had all these statues and idols and occultic books. And she came and accepted the Lord, but she just couldn't surrender these books. Finally, she came to me and said, look, I can't handle them. I said, well, I'm going to burn them. Like they did here, I'm gonna burn them. Because the burning of the book symbolically and these books were the the, the symbolic of the coming burning in the lake of fire and how fire. And then when I went to burn them, she said, no, I've got to have them back. Give them back to me. So I'd give them back to her. I thought, no, you've got to make the decision. And back and forth two or three times. And finally, she finally she said, you know, these spirits are still troubling me. I said, well, you've got to get rid of all these magic books and witchcraft books and all these idols and fat-bellied Buddha and all this incense and nonsense she was bowing down to. And uh, as I, I, I got them eventually, and she gave them back to me and I burnt them and there was blue flames and pink flames and yellow flames and all sorts of, and I was just in the name of Jesus and the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus I was burning those things but it broke something off her eh? broke something off her hallelujah so that's good foundation for a church right so now just go down to verse 21 after these things were ended Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, I'm saying that for a reason, because when we get later on here, as that time keeps moving, some people say that Paul was out of the will of God in going to Jerusalem, because the prophets come along and say, through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, you're headed for trouble. And when they tried to persuade him not to go... He said, they said, the will of the Lord be done. So some people say Paul was out of the will of God. I say he was in the will of God because the subsequent scriptures show the Lord said, just as you've borne witness of me here, you're going to bear witness of me at Rome and at Jerusalem. The Lord was in it. So he had to prove the prophecies. And see, many times we get a prophetic word and misinterpret it. And that's what happened as we see here. All right, so we go down in the rest of the chapter here and we find Demetrius causes the great riot as, as, uh, as so many were turning to the Lord and this guy was losing his business, uh, the worship of Diana. In fact, let me uh, just read something off my note here on, uh, on, on Diana here. Yes, Demetrius the silversmith who made much money through the little silver shrines of the great goddess Diana aroused the businessmen of the city and the goddess Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world she was one of the principal goddesses of the Greeks and Romans and her Greek name was Artemis idolatry abounded in these cities with all immorality and vile orgies and this was the deification of a woman, a goddess and behind the worship of, of idols was a spirit and and the goddess was reputed to have fallen from heaven and the greeks had numerous gods and goddesses demigods semi-gods half god half men and uh uh when you think of that whole matriarchal spirit that was in the city and it's interesting that this city that had the great goddess diana uh, is the one that Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians about the beautiful bride of Christ. Uh, and when you write to the, the, the churches in Revelation, the church of Ephesus and the latter, you find that uh, very dominant woman in there, uh, that uh, link up there, great is the Diana of the Ephesus uh, of the Ephesians. And uh, so we have that whole upheaval there and Paul eventually has to get out of town. All right. As I said last time, you either have a riot or a revival. So then Paul moves from Ephesus. So we have the foundation of the Ephesus Ephesian church. Then he moves into Macedonia just for a quick stopover, a quick stopover in Corinth in Greece, and then a quick stopover in Philippi, and then he moves to Troas. I'd like you to pick up a couple of thoughts uh, as Luke is just touching on the high spots here in, uh, in chapter 20 and verses 6 through to 12. Paul comes to Troas here and uh, in verse 7 we're told upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread Paul preached unto them ready to depart on the, on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight and of course a young man fell asleep as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell out of the third loft and broke uh, and was taken up dead anyway Paul said don't worry about it I'll raise him from the dead It's also all so easy in the book of Acts wasn't it now I tell people I am like the apostle Paul I can put you to sleep but I can't raise you from the dead so it does keep people awake <laughs> so they don't fall out the window that guy experienced resurrection life you'll notice here we're starting to pick up something in verse 7 the first day of the week the first day of the week Let me just remind you of something we uh, did way back early in the book of Acts. There are four main scriptures concerning the first day of the week. And what is happening now, remember the book of Acts is a book of transition. uh, Coming from the old covenant now to the new covenant. And so far Paul has been keeping sabbath by going to the synagogues preaching on the sabbath days that's when he got the jews but now the church is in transition say we are no longer under the old covenant we don't have to have circumcision sabbath days paul is moving from that as the revelation is coming to him remember paul had no new testament none of them had the new testament so the Holy Spirit is just revealing. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, He's going to show you things to come. I've got many things to say to you. You can't bear them now, but I'm going to lead you into all truth by the Spirit. So the Spirit's unfolding truth through the book of Acts. So now they've seen the whole issue on circumcision, chapter 15, though Timothy was circumcised, Titus wasn't. Now the business on the Sabbath day. Should we keep the Sabbath day? That's all changing, and they're moving to the first day of the week. Okay, now, reminding you of what we did many sessions back under the old testament type of the passover week we find that the lamb was taken on the 10th day and kept to the 14th day three days and three nights later as the the fulfillment proves on the morrow after the sabbath the sheaf of first fruits was waved so even under the old covenant First day of the week, but didn't know why. They kept the Sabbath and the first day of the week. Then, when we come to the, uh, when we move this diagram further on, seven weeks later, seven, 49, everybody agree with that? Got unity here. Then it says the 49th day, the seventh Sabbath, the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, which was the 50th day, which was the first day of the week, was the day of Pentecost. So, under the Old Testament, the sheep of first fruits. And the day of Pentecost was kept not on the Sabbath, but on the morrow after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. Now, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. So, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Lamb of God. Four days later, Wednesday, the midst of the week. Not only the midst of the 70th week, but the midst of the week, Wednesday. So, no such thing as traditional Good Friday, Good Wednesday. He's crucified in the midst of the week then three days and three nights later he rises from the dead as the sheaf of first fruits. so if you're taking down notes let me give you four important things why we have the changeover from the Sabbath and that's why we're not a Sabbath keepers or seven-day Adventists or in, in the in the States knew uh, a brother he's dead and knows better now uh, a good brother he was so scared about this thing he kept Saturday and Sunday just to make sure and of course I often tell you that when I was in the Middle East the Muslims kept Friday Sabbath the Jews kept Saturday Sabbath the Christians kept the Lord's Day Sunday and I thought wow three days off from the week I'm going to introduce that in Australia but when I got back here the unions had beat me to it okay so uh You know, they're moving from the first day. So number one, the resurrection of Christ took place on the first day of the week. Number one, resurrection of Christ took place on the first day of the week. Number two, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost on the first day of the week. Number three, the disciples met together to break bread the first day of the week. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1, he says, When you take up the collections for the saints, take it up on the first day of the week, and I've ordained this in all the churches. So that's four things we can do on the first day of the week. Not the Sabbath, which is the end of the Old Covenant week. We don't keep the end of the Old Covenant week. We keep the first of the New Covenant week. So four things. So I say, if Jesus kept the first day and rose from the dead on the first day of the week, not the Sabbath, And the Holy Spirit bypassed the Sabbath and came on the first day of the week. And the early disciples broke bread on the first day of the week and Paul preached on the first day of the week. And they took up collections on the first day of the week. How many think that's good enough for us to do that on the first day of the week? And really speaking, we don't keep just one day of the week. We serve the Lord seven days. But we're in a country that allows us to do this. So four important things. So that's very important in, in Troas. All right, now, time's uh, almost through. Let's go down a little bit here. From Troas now, he moves on to Miletus. And from Miletus, he sends and speaks, calls the elders of the church at Ephesus. And so we have Paul's sermon here. I've just uh, outlined Paul's sermon and charge to the elders here and the four things. So we have Paul's charge to the elders of Ephesus and verses 18 through to 27 we have Paul's testimony. And what a testimony and what a and what a challenge this is because see in the book of Acts Acts 14:23 we're told that Paul and Barnabas and so on they ordained elders in every church. It doesn't say they ordained a pastor. They ordained elders in every church. And so we have Paul's charge to the elders of Ephesus here, and he goes through, let me just read some of the scripture, because I couldn't say it better than Paul. Verse 17 of Acts 20, And from my leaders he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, You know, Paul, with all his revelations, the abundance of the books he wrote, uh, knowledge puffs up, even knowledge of the Scriptures. But Paul says, look, I serve with all humility of mind. Paul could have been a very proud man. He was as a Pharisee. But uh, do you know what I know about the Bible? I find the more I know, the less I know. Because you'll never exhaust what's in this book. If you could exhaust what's in the book, you could exhaust the author. And I find the more I study this, the more I know about it, the less I know, I think. It's so inexhaustible, Lord. Humility of mind. Many tears. Paul's always bandied about and beaten as a tough old legalistic man, but Paul was a man who could weep. Temptations. All the trials and everything he went through. Beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, you know not many priests can write all that today the lying in wait of the Jews and I kept nothing that was back that was profitable to you I taught you publicly in the major gatherings and I also taught you in the house meetings from house to house and then in verse 21 he says my two major foundation platform truths were repentance toward God faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ So now he says, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. I've got to get to Jerusalem. I've got to witness there. He knew in the Spirit. So though later on in chapter 21 and 22, prophets are going to come along and say, this is what's going to happen to the man of Jerusalem. Now the prophecy was right, but they misinterpreted and said, don't go to Jerusalem. That prophecy that says, this is what's going to happen to you, Jerusalem, is really telling you don't go. He said, look, I know what's going to happen to me. The, The Lord's already told me. So the prophecy was right, but we can misinterpret the prophecy. Very hard, particularly on personal things. So he said, I'm going to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has told me in every city, bonds and affliction. But he said, none of these things move me. I'm going to finish my course with joy in the ministry I've received in the gospel. So he says, I've been preaching the kingdom of God. You're not going to see me anymore. I'm pure from the blood of all men. I've declared unto you the whole counsel of God. So his whole testimony example, what a challenge to the elders. You know, one of the sad things here is this, that uh, as we said, one of the greatest churches was the church at Ephesus. And uh, when you look at uh, sort of the the New Testament history here, in Acts uh, 19, we have the foundation of the church at Ephesus and all those things that happened special miracles, repentance, faith, water baptism, and uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, another penny cost, all those things in the foundation of the church. Acts 20, now Paul comes along after, uh, on his back trip here, Acts 20, and he gives this tremendous charge to the elders of the church. Year, a few years later, this is about, let's see, I had some approximate dates here, this is about AD uh, 54, somewhere in there, 56, And now about 57, when Paul's in prison, we have the great prison epistle uh, of the uh, epistle to the Ephesians. Circular letter, but the the revelation he he gives. But now years later, AD 90, what happens? It's not Paul in prison now, it's John in Patmos, and he says, write to the church of Ephesus. And we have uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 1 through the 6th, you've left your first love and if only those elders had have maintained what they learned from Paul when he laid that charge on them and how churches and can happen to Waverly if we don't watch it start off good we can degenerate if we don't maintain and I say God help us, God help us, amen everybody said amen and so he gives the charge to the uh, elders in verse 28, take heed therefore to yourself, self is the biggest enemy oh, and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed, not bleed. Feed the church of God, which He's purchased with His own blood, the blood of God. I know what's going to happen after my departing. Two problems. Wolves are going to come from without, and not sparing the flock, and also elders of yourself are going to rise up from within, drawing disciples after themselves, causing division, splitting churches, and... Just tragic some of the things I've heard of recently of churches where elders have just split and taken people and he warns them. And then we have his commendation. I commend you to the grace of God. And I think it's very touching as we finish here in verse 36 and 38. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down. Can you picture the scene here? They're not going to see Paul anymore because he knows what's going to happen to him. He kneeled down and prayed with them all. I want to pray with you elders. I can just uh, picture the scene. And they all, I'm doing it myself, they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Sorrowing most of all for the words that she spoke that they'd never see him anymore. Then we have him going to Jerusalem then to Rome where he's beheaded. What an example for us. Let's all stand our times up. Father, we just pray that you'll take what we've shared tonight, so many things, and what a challenge Paul is to us, just as a man of like passions like us, but what an example of total commitment and total surrender to your will, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we pray, Father, that this will not just be information to our mind, but challenge to our heart and to our spirits, that we'll be totally and unconditionally surrendered to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you. Be sure to visit KevinConnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books, and his ministry.